0: All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Go ahead and if you have your Bible, turn with us to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We are drawing near to the close of our of our eschatology series in Revelation. <clears throat> and again, we haven't gone any by any means verse by verse through the book, but we've tried to give sort of a general broad overview of at least how we think the book could be interpreted or should be interpreted. Can I say something? Yeah, yeah.
1: Like, keep in mind, folks. A long time ago, we started in systematic theology and Bible doctrine. <laughs> that was the, you know, we kind of use Grudem's Bible doctrine as kind of a loose jumping off point. Um, and so we're we are where we are because when you go through systematic theology, you look at all the, you know, major doctrines of the Christian faith. Usually, eschatology is at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, it means the end. Um, and so. It, it just worked out that way that we got there and then we decided to spend a little extra time um, to make sure it was clear our position, where we're coming from, how we see that worked out across Scripture. Um, but this is technically we're at the end of doing a long series on systematic theology. Um, we need to get that, like, put together at some point on the, on the website. So um, It was interrupted
0: yeah. by COVID, the lockdown. We had one year where we had no Sunday school. So the yeah. series started and stopped, and then it came back. And so it's been starting and stopping yeah. for, for, like, almost three years.
1: But, yeah, this has been, the eschatology part's been fun and challenging.
0: No, that's Good. Papa, can you pray for us? And then we'll we'll begin by giving some takeaways from our amillennial argument, like what difference does that make to our everyday life? And then we'll jump into the final judgment scene in Revelation 20.
2: Heavenly Father, thank you that we're able to gather this afternoon and uh, continue our journey, uh, our eschatology journey. Uh, We're in the uh, judgment, uh, the last days a final judgment, um, before we get to the new heavens and the new earth, which is the good news for a couple of weeks, perhaps. But uh, thank you, Lord, for this uh, mosaic of how you uh, have been working with your creation. Uh, Daniel was just whetted our appetite uh, so well. And, and we saw the end in Daniel, and now we're seeing the end again. And, and Daniel talked about the judgment and the great white throne and the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Uh, but, Lord, all that's coming uh, together here in, in, in these verses in chapter 20, 11 through 15. So um, be with us in your spirit. Help us to understand, help our hearers to understand the gravity and the seriousness of these words today. There's gonna come a time when all creatures, great and small, are accountable before you and you alone uh, for uh, their life. And, And that's kind of scary to even contemplate. So help us today to unfold this this journey, this mystery, this intrigue, this glorious revelation of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.
0: And before, I want Greg to give some some practical takeaways for this view. Let me just state it again real quick, very brief version here. If if you want to know more and you weren't here, you can go back and look at this on the podcast or on the YouTube channel. But we've been arguing that the the millennium, which is mentioned multiple times in Revelation 20, is a reference to… Again, this is not necessarily the majority view, but our our understanding is that the millennium is something that's happening right now. It lasts throughout the church age between Christ's first and second coming. It applies to all Christians who die before the return of Christ. Every Christian who has ever died before Christ has come back. Every Christian who's died since Christ uh, was raised from the dead until now, until Christ returns, uh, does not cease to exist They do not enter into soul sleep where they wake up almost out of a spiritual coma at the return of Christ, which some people have taught. But no, we we believe that saints are reigning right now uh, in heaven. Their souls are alive and well in the immediate presence of Jesus and all deceased saints from both the Old and New Testament who have died ahead of us. They are doing absolutely wonderfully. They are secure in Christ. They, they have the vision of Christ in front of them, the, the beatific vision of God's very face in Christ, and they are rejoicing together, reigning together, triumphing together, and they are participating in the first resurrection, which is that, that spiritual resurrection in Christ. And we know that one day at the end of the millennium, there will be a great revolt in the world led by the Antichrist. Christ will come back and subdue that, put it to, to naught. He will destroy the devil, cast him into the lake of fire, and then we will enter into today's text, which is the final judgment uh, according to works. Uh, believers are rescued from the Lamb's Book of Life, they are rescued, and unbelievers are cast into the lake of fire, and then there is the eternal state of the new creation, or the new heavens and new earth. So if, if that is the correct reading, uh, Greg, what are some takeaways practically?
1: Um, okay, so we dialogue back and forth on this, um, and I kind of blew up their, their text bubbles with thoughts, um, but I'll start with uh, at least one that you mentioned. Um, you know, if, if the position we're arguing for is true, then it does affect how we read the Bible. It provides a framework by which we can connect the dots. You know, I think we've used this, this image before, but think of a, the box top to a puzzle, okay? Uh, this is, we've been presenting the box top so that you see how everything connects, how everything fits together. Um, and so it helps us when we read scripture because we know, you know, how the individual pieces are meant to go together and we know the overall picture that they're forming. That's huge when you read the Bible because if you don't have that or you have the wrong one, you're not going to be able to make sense of things the way you need to when you're reading an individual text or passage. We know what's the point of this, where's it going, how's it fit. If you know the box top, if you know the, the finished puzzle, if you will, it, it helps you not despair when you don't understand something because you know somehow it fits into the overarching um, plan that God's got going on. Um, so some other things that the, the amillennial uh, view does. One, I think, I think it helps us be more realistic when it comes to future persecution. Uh, so many folks who have the, the mentality that, well, the church is going to be taken away before, before it really gets bad. They're like, man, I just can't imagine how terrible and awful. And it's almost like this this science fiction horror show that's gonna come and man, I'm just glad I'm not gonna be there for it when in reality, it's going to be bad but it's only going to be an intensification and a more pervasive form of what the church has been dealing with since it was founded. Like it helps us, I think, approach persecution with a better mindset, a more, you know, I don't wanna say like a hopeful one necessarily but it's like Christians have endured Um, the worst possible things um, throughout church history and I'm not going to be facing anything different than they did except maybe it's just going to be more pervasive uh, because the church is going to be they're going to zero in on the church and try to do away with Christianity but Christians have already been enduring that for 2,000 years Um, and so I think it makes it more real world and say okay the, the kinds of things I read about. And if you listen to, to Scott talk, I mean, he's always referencing martyrs and people who've gone through suffering. Guess what? I can read them and say, they got through it by the grace of God, so can I. It's not some super extra terrible bad thing that, that nobody's ever seen before. It's just more of um, and more pervasive of what the church has already been going through. So that encourages me. That encourages me to say, okay, when it comes, I can endure the exact same way because I'm facing the exact same types of things Christians have already faced and overcome. Here's another one. Um, The Omnimal Perspective teaches us um, that we need to stay faithful to Christ to the end, not loving our lives unto death. Our reward comes through, um, through suffering, it comes through persecution, and we know on the other end of that is the the face of our savior saying, well done my good and faithful servant. How do we stay faithful? We stay faithful not by saying, well, I'm glad I'm not gonna go through it. No, by his promise and his power and the confidence of knowing that he's going to keep us and he's going to strengthen us. Um, It should motivate us, why? To preach the gospel, why? Because we know we're going to succeed in that. The church will complete its witness. Um, The church does not fail in the task that God gave it. Again, we're pushing back against the mindset that says, well, the church age is just destined to end in failure. Yes, there's going to be a turning away. Yes, there's going to be an apostasy at the end. But the whole of the New Testament clearly says the nations will be reached. The church will fulfill its commission to preach the gospel. Just jumping on on that
0: point, remember we talked about how Satan is bound during the thousand year reign of Christ. And remember Jesus said the binding of Satan happens when he dies on the cross. His ability to keep the nations, the Gentile nations in darkness has been overcome. Mm -hmm. Now the gospel is breaching out. It is going everywhere across the world and people from every nation are being converted. So we we know that there's gonna be a massive success of the gospel by the time Christ returns. And there already has been massive success of the gospel. Mm -hmm. I mean, go rewind 2000 years. How many Christians were there in Acts chapter one after Jesus goes back to heaven? There's like 120, right, in the upper room in Jerusalem. How many, how, take the, take the, the size of Rome. and They're outnumbered, like, what is it, like 120,000 to one or something? You know, they're, they're outnumbered unimaginably. Well, today, the Roman Empire is dead and gone, and Christianity has taken over the Western world. It's now moving to the S- South America. It's moving to Africa. It's, move, it's, ex, it's just absolutely growing in China. So we are, we are already seeing the, that, that sense of the binding of mm-hmm. Satan and the, the nations coming to, to know Christ, at least people from every nation.
1: Yeah. It, in, in light of that, it also... It removes um, an overly pessimistic attitude about the future. Now, we're not, we don't like cover our eyes, stick our head in the sand. We know there's going to be persecution. We know that before Jesus comes back, it's going to get worse. It's going to intensify and be more pervasive. But that doesn't mean we failed in what God has called us to do. Um, The church will finish her task Here's another thing, thinking of you know, viewing history this way, I think it elevates significantly our own identity in Christ and it opens up a huge swath of the New Testament and how it applies to us um, that we might miss if we had a different view. Um, all of God's promises terminate in Christ and therefore go to the church. So we realize we're not second, second place people of God, we're not that other people of God that are only here because Israel refused their Messiah. No, what we have in the church was God's plan all along. Okay, um, it magnifies God's glory in the church. I mean, you think about that. Um, God has tied the display of his glory to the life and, and preaching of the church. And so if the church is succeeds in its mission and the church is the people of God, then we are tasked with displaying the glory of God, proclaiming the glory of God in the world. We're not tangential to that. No, there's a greater display coming in Israel down the road when the church is taken away and it's just Israel again. No, like God's tied it to us. He's tied it to us. And that one, it it, it increases our responsibility, but also it should increase our joy because we get to do this. Like we're the ones God is tasked with this. Um, It magnifies God's uh, plan and purpose in christ and it sh- I think it showcases the unity um, of god 's people and god 's plan across the old and new testament um, and I think lastly it focuses correctly on Christ and not Israel as the true focus of all of god 's plans and promises
2: and even judgment focuses on christ i mean yeah. We, we, we know from Romans that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until, until now. And, and so the, the whole creation's crying out. And we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And, 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 and so we're, we're asking, we're seeking the judgment of God for what we see all around us. And so judgment, actually addresses that issue and glorifies god it it uh he he is he he glories in this this action and and we glorify him through glorifying him and and believing in him and and exalting him and praising him uh you know when i I still read the ancient of days and one like the son of man from Daniel and i I don't know the hair just stands up on the back of my neck and it just You know, I want to see that glory. It's like the transfiguration. Uh, I want to, I want to, I'm excited about it. It gets me, uh, uh, I'm ready, so.
0: Can you read for us, Papa Fred? Just just to kind of put the pieces together, can you start in verse 7 of Revelation 20 and read to the end of the chapter? Yes, sir.
2: And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, together, and gathered them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire.
0: And then, of course, you see, just, i got to read the very next verse as well. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So we're clearly at that final moment after the millennium, right before the final new creation, and you have this, this throne room, this great white throne uh, judgment scene.
2: You almost have to read one after what well, we just know, got there. I know, I know. It's very,
0: it goes, yeah, it's it, it very much negative with the idea of the judgment there and then moving towards the new creation. But uh, Greg, could you sort of set the stage for us here on what, what's going on with this, uh, this judgment scene at the end of chapter 20?
1: Uh, yeah, um, I'll do my best to do that. So, What we we see in verse 11 is what all of scripture has been pointing forward to uh, from the Old Testament uh, all the way through the New Testament, this final day, this final Mm -hmm. moment when all of humanity is standing in the presence of God to give an account for their lives. Um, Whether believer or unbeliever, um, everyone is here. This is God in his glory uh, his 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 wrath his, his righteousness his holiness his judgment on full display um, no one can run from this no one can hide from it no one can escape it no one can uh, try to pretend it's irrelevant at this point there's nowhere for anyone to go but the presence of God and so it's not that we're trying to be be overly dramatic in, in talking about this but I mean, this is going to happen and every human being who has ever lived is going to be here and they are going to see their creator. um, And as we'll see, they have to give an account. They are going to be judged for their works, for what they did in their short time on planet earth. Um, And there are two types of people that are going to come out of this. There are those who are going to go into eternal life and there are those who are going into eternal punishment. It's one of only two destinations. And it, 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 it feeds or it's, it draws from the Old Testament, New Testament picture of the two, the two ways humanity is separated. You've got the righteous and the wicked. Think back to Psalm 1. Uh, The very end, you know, the righteous are like a tree that that are strong, it's nourished. The wicked, it says, are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not, what, stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly or congregation of the righteous. Um, So what Psalm 1, way, way back when, was looking forward to that judgment in which people are going to either stand or be carried away by the judgment, it's here. This is the final reckoning for humanity and in the th- presence of God.
2: And it's very public, too. Uh, I was no. talking to Greg right before uh, we started, and uh, Burkoff, Louis Burkoff, uh, uh, posits that this is, you know, when, when you pass away, obviously that's a public thing, especially to your family. But at that very moment, your soul goes either to, in the presence of God or goes to uh, death in Hades until this date, but it's sort of a private thing. Uh, This is very public. Mm -hmm. This is every creature, like you said, Greg, every creature that's ever lived on the face of the planet will stand before the throne of God. Now, I don't know how God's going to do that, uh, if you've ever sat through a college graduation and had them read every (laughs) every night, but anyway,
0: uh, but this is very public. Yeah, and I, I may have mentioned this at some other point, but I remember a number of years ago, Saddam Hussein was finally found. I think soldiers pulled him out of an underground bunker. I remember the newspaper article of him coming out. He looked awful, just like he'd been hiding underground. They pulled him out, and he was I think he was executed soon after that. But if you, if, I don't know if you saw the picture of him getting pulled out, but the idea here is there's no place to hide. Mm-hmm. But he knows he's committed horrific crimes in his life. He knows that justice is coming. He knows people are trying to hunt him down and bring justice to all that he had done. And so he got away with it for years and years and years. And suddenly they track down the area where he's at then they track down the actual location where he's at. Then they actually track down the bunker, this underground bunker where he was hiding for his life and they pull him out and he is put to death. Well, similarly here, when it says, look at verse 11 one more time. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them, and I saw the dead. Great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. The idea here being, it's like a kid's in trouble, and so they know dad's coming. Uh Uh-oh, so what if the kid goes and runs away into a corner room, or they go try to hide, act like nothing's going on, they try to kind of get away from justice in that moment, they don't have discipline come. Well, there is gonna be nowhere where we can hide. Uh, There's nowhere we can turn. You can't go hide off somewhere in a corner, Earth and sky are going to flee away. There's going to be nothing. It's like Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves with the fig leaves and hide behind the, the bushes and the trees. And God's going, are you kidding me? I, I have all knowledge. I can see you, Adam and Eve. You're right there. Uh, oh, Lord, you know, uh, don't, don't find us. But earlier in Revelation, similarly, look, look at chapter 6. I think this is a powerful image of the same scene of Christ returning in judgment. Look, look at uh, Revelation 6. I think it's the exact same moment in time. Look at verse 13 of Revelation 6. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. There's nowhere to hide. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on a throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand I mean the text here is saying people would rather have an avalanche or falling rocks come down and crush them and hide them they would prefer that over meeting Jesus in the mode of his wrath and judgment when he comes back that is a tremendous picture, a dramatic picture of the kind of judgment we're talking about. When Jesus comes back in flaming fire for those who have rejected Him, they would rather be crushed by gigantic rocks than face the wrath of the Lamb. They'll be calling for mountains to crush them rather than face Jesus in the mode of His judgment. That that is a terrifying picture uh, for, for those who are outside His wrath. And let us never forget, God's wrath is never disproportionate to the crimes done. God has never and will never overpunish anyone for anything they have ever done. God's judgment always perfectly meets the crime. He bases it on what we knew when we committed it. Even if we'd never heard the gospel, we knew enough in our conscience to know we should not have told that lie. We should not have disrespected that person. We still have a conscience given by God. And when we violate what we know, God holds us accountable for what we know. And God will judge us in accordance with what we knew. And God never overpunishes anyone. The only person in the history of the world to ever receive worse than they deserve was Jesus on the cross. That's the only time anyone ever got worse. And he got infinitely worse than he deserved. And that was all as a, as a way of saving those who would turn to him. So th- this judgment is never, it's never disproportionate. We, we, we've got we've to just agree on this as Christians. We're not going to be embarrassed by what scripture says about God's wrath. We're not. People in the world will think this is an embarrassment. How can you believe that? that that's hyperjudgmental. No, this is justice. The, the issue here is not that God is too wrathful. The issue is that we don't see sin as being as big and bad as it actually is, right? And we, we think sin is small, so wrath should be small, you know? What's the big deal? I've sinned a few times. I'm a decent person, but God's wrath should be a small thing, a temporary thing. If we understood the gravity of our sin, the enormity of our sin, the infinity of our sin, of even the smallest sins we commit, we would say, I deserve to be absolutely obliterated under God's judgment, and yet Christ has made a way for even me to be made right with God. So never be embarrassed by Scripture and God's wrath. Be embarrassed by the sin that merits God's wrath. If we're going to be embarrassed by anything on this topic, be embarrassed by what you thought this morning on the way here. Be embarrassed by what you said yesterday to your your friend or your your, your, you know, your, your uh, spouse or something like that. Be, be embarrassed by your own personal sin way more than we're uncomfortable with God's, with God's judgment. God's judgment is just. It is we who are the ones who are unjust in this situation.
1: I want to draw your attention to another point um, about this judgment. When we say this is the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, we, we mean that this is the only one. There's not a series of judgments that take place at the end, and this is the third or the last of of a bunch of them. Um I want to take you to several texts that um, I would argue and am arguing are different ways of looking at this same event. It's not separate events, not historically previous events. it's the it's the scripture looking at the same event. And addressing it from multiple angles, so that we get a full picture, um, let's look first at 2 Corinthians chapter five verses nine and ten. The reason why this matters again, like not I'm not trying to be overly antagonistic. I'm not trying to to pick a fight here, but we are distinguishing ourselves from a very from the the more traditional, more popular view. of of dispensationalism and we've talked about the rapture and all that, uh, but dispensationalism sees three distinct judgments at the end, okay? The first one we're gonna look at here in 2 Corinthians five is what is referred to as the judgment or the behemoth seat of Christ. This, according to the dispensationalist view, happens when the church is raptured up and saints are, the church is glorified, they're resurrected in the presence of Christ and they're judged, that's their judgment for the church. Um, the second one we're gonna look at in a second is what's called the judgment of the nations. And that's what happens at the return of Christ. So all the, the Old Testament saints are resurrected, tribulation saints are resurrected, the dead. Um, well, no, none of the, the, the wicked are judged. Um, well, maybe just the wicked during that, that tribulation period and then the great white throne. So there's three distinct judgments in that view. And I the more I study this, I just cannot go there. The scripture presents one judgment and it looks at it and it comes back to it again and again and again to give us the fullest perspective possible. Just
0: before you read yeah. it, I totally agree with you, Greg, there. I think this is a big point. If, in my humble opinion, it seems to me that these, these texts on judgment read in context give no indication that you're dealing with three separate judgments mm-hmm. over a span of time with very different people involved in each one. If you just read them Without a dispensational system in your mind first, you would, I don't think anyone would come to the conclusion that these are different judgments. I think you would just assume these are all obviously the same event, mm-hmm. uh, giving you different angles on it. But if you, if you already believe dispensationalism, you have to make room for these different judgments. And so you sort of find them, even though I don't think they're really there in the yeah. text to start with.
1: You, you have to have the system already assumed in order to see it. Yes. Yeah. All right, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Um, look here, it says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please the Lord, you know, absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. And then verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Again, in context, Paul is talking about the one final judgment at which Christ will be the judge. And that's another point we're gonna look at um, a little bit later, but the judge, the, the one on the great white throne is Jesus. Okay, um, and so here, 2 Corinthians 5, it's not um, just the church being taken away. This is when Jesus returns, we're going to appear before his judgment seat because he's the judge on the throne. Um, now, let's look at Matthew chapter 25. Okay, we all know this passage, um, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And this is again, what a dispensationalist would say, this is the judgment of the nations at the return of Christ before the millennium. And they would say, well, at this point, uh, tribulation saints, Old Testament saints are raised. Um, The wicked who were judged are only those who sided with the antichrist and the false prophet during that final seven year period. The rest of the wicked will not be raised for their judgment until the great white throne judgment. But again, keeping Revelation 20, keeping second Corinthians five, Listen to this. This is yet again filling in the details for the one final judgment. Begin in verse 31. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his rights, but the goats on the left and we know, you know, he talks about, you know, when I was hungry, this, that, and the other, you know, his people, the sheep, gonna be like, when did we do this? Well, as much as you did to the least of me, you did to me. And so all the way down to verse 46, it says, and these, those who did not show hospitality, did not love those who were unbelievers um, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's everybody. That's everybody. Yeah. Um, And so the point is, we read these texts, not as separate judgments, but as talking about the same event that's covered in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. What we do is we get a bigger, fuller, stronger picture of that one final judgment. Again, you have to assume a particular grid in order to say these aren't talking about the final judgment. And I, I hope we've been convincing that that grid does not work that grid is not the best grid it's not the best framework for understanding how the bible fits together
0: yeah again not to overmake this point but just as dispensationalism demands multiple returns of christ when we think there's only one taught in the bible and they sort of read that into text about the rapture similarly with final judgment I think there's just one, but they read in multiple judgments over several over a thousand-year period. There's a, there's a mm-hmm. judgment, there's another judgment seven years later, there's another, another judgment a thousand years later. I just don't see that uh, contextually. It's all the nations are before Christ, and you have believers and unbelievers present. Their lifestyle vindicates or validates their claim to know Jesus or not to know Jesus, and that's how they are judged, and it's consistent with all the other judgment scenes that we see.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: you even, even
2: go to Matthew 24, you know, my favorite text. And 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 Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days in verse 29, 24-29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man that all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. That's the last trumpet right there and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other.
0: That's, that's good. So turn with still in Matthew, go back to Matthew chapter 12 for just a moment here. Similar type of scene described of final judgment. And listen to these words of Jesus. I think they're significant in this whole discussion. So before I read the text, let me ask the question. And you may already have the answer in your head, but let me ask the question. If we believe, which we, we absolutely do, we believe we are saved by, faith, uh, through grace in, by grace through faith in Christ. We are not saved by our works. We are not justified by our works. We are not declared righteous by our actions. Our works have nothing whatsoever to do with our right, right standing with God. We believe we are saved entirely by grace through faith in Christ. If that is true, which we believe, why do works play such an important role in the final judgment? Now, l- listen to this. In the Old Testament, there's many texts you can look at. In the New Testament, there's texts all across from the Gospels to Paul to Revelation. I don't know any exception out of many, many texts. Every single one that I'm aware of, every single one that talks about final judgment makes your actions in this life determine where you go in eternity. Now... You, you, someone could see there's tension there, right? We're saved not by works, and then every single judgment scene is by, according to works. The one you read in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll be rewarded for our good deeds or punished for our bad deeds, all, all these different texts. Matthew 25, how you treated the believers, it shows how I'll treat you. What do we do with this? Well, let's look at one more. Matthew 12, 33. Straight from Jesus himself, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known That word known is important. The tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, that sounds like it contradicts what I just said about justification. I said, we're justified not by works. And Jesus said, by your words, you'll be justified or condemned. Well, am I disagreeing with Jesus? Okay, no, I'm not. Because let me give you another text where Jesus is also talking. In Luke 18, Jesus talks about the tax collector and the Pharisee up in the temple, remember? And the one guy says, I'm so good. I've done all these great deeds. I've never committed adultery, never extorted, blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm so righteous. And the other guy, the tax collector with a life of sin comes in, falls on his face and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that guy, the broken, sinful guy who's repented, he went home justified. The other guy did not. So we got to fit these two statements of Jesus together. And it's not that hard to do when you stop to think about it. And I think the answer is probably obvious to you. Jesus says here, not that our good works save us. They don't save us. The fruit shows what kind of tree we are. They don't make us a certain tree. They show, like evidence, what kind of tree you are. You will be known by your fruit. The fruit doesn't make you a Christian. The fruit proves that you're a Christian. Or bad fruit doesn't make you a non-Christian. It what? It proves. It shows evidence that you don't yet know Jesus. So Jesus is not saying we're saved by works. All these judgment scenes are saying a transformation of life is what always happens when you truly trust Jesus. And the transformation of life is the fruit that proves that the root has changed. You're fundamentally a different kind of person because of the transformation of your life. And my, one of my favorite illustrations of this, it, it comes from Piper, and it's a little bit imagined. Uh, he uses a sanctified imagination, but I think he's correct. At the end of one of his sermons a number of years ago, you were in the room when he preached this sermon, 2010, oh, uh, T4G. Yes. And at the end of the sermon, uh, Piper said this. He said, if this is true, that by your words you're justified, by your words you're condemned, your actions, what about someone like the thief on the cross? Or a, death, a deathbed conversion, where the person's alive for an hour before they go into eternity. How does the thief on the cross pass the judgment according to works? Because let's say the guy was 30 years old like Jesus. He spent his whole life as an insurrectionist, right? He's been killing and murdering, kind of like a Barabbas figure. He ends up on a cross, probably perhaps justly for murder and theft and things like that, and an insurrection. He's hanging up there next to Jesus getting what he says he deserves, so he's dying when he deserves to die, and he's about to slip into eternity with no good works, zero good works. He's got nothing. He's got nothing but sin and depravity for his whole life, and he's hanging there on the cross. He starts his time on the cross by mocking Jesus, because Matthew says both of them at the beginning were mocking Jesus. So both thieves start by insulting Jesus. Oh, you're the Christ, and you're hanging on a cross? That's hilarious. You're no Christ? Come on. This is ridiculous. And before long, that thief must see the title over Jesus' head written in all those languages, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews, and he's thinking, this this makes no sense. And then what? He's seeing how Jesus responds to his mockers. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He's caring for his mother. He's doing things that are absolutely no crucified person is praying for the salvation of of the people crucifying them. No one does that, and this guy's doing it. And while he sits there, the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate this, this dead in sin thief's mind. Suddenly he goes, maybe, beyond imagination, maybe the Messiah, is actually in some way dying a death he does not deserve, in some way, and he's got some kingdom coming, maybe he really is the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit opens his eyes, and he has very little to work with here. He has no Gospel of John to read, no Romans, and he somehow by faith trusts Christ and says to the other thief, guy, you need to stop talking. We are being crucified justly. We deserve this death, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he says, Jesus, please remember me when you enter your kingdom. Well, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, and Jesus dies. And then, within about an hour or two of Jesus dying, they break that thief's leg, and he asphyxiates. He dies. So he's he's been a Christian for what five hours, max. And here's what Piper says: How does the thief pass the judgment according to works? Because he will. And here's what I think will happen: God will take his whole thirty-plus years, however long, however old he was. God will take all of his unrighteous deeds, and he'll toss them under the blood of the lamb at the final judgment. The books containing all his evil deeds, he will toss them under the blood of the lamb. They'll be covered. And at the back of the file, there'll be this tiny little piece of paper at the very back of his life. And God the Father, or Christ in this case, pulls out that last sheet of paper and holds it up to the universe and says, he confessed the guilt and just condemnation of his sinful life. He rebuked a man for mocking Christ. And he turned to Christ alone for salvation and to, for entrance into the kingdom. And Jesus granted him that entrance. And Jesus, Jesus will hold up that, those three good deeds Did it earn anything? Those don't earn anything. Jesus will hold it up to the whole universe and say, his faith in me was genuine. His life was transformed. It lasted for less than five hours, but he's got enough good fruit to prove he really did trust me as Messiah, and he will pass the judgment according to works. This is not merit theology. This is, has there been a change by grace theology? And my goodness, even if we've been a Christian for five hours, there's going to be enough to show that there has been a transformation of of our former life into into our new life.
1: Mm, wow, that'll preach right there, man! Goodness, that's good stuff. Mm, I love that. All right, um, back to Revelation. Um, Revelation chapter twenty again. Who's going to be here? This is another another important issue um, because again, one the, the 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 pervasive view in in churches is uh, you know I, I went and listened to folks read stuff to make sure I wasn't getting this wrong. You listen to John MacArthur, Steve Lawson. Revelation 2011 through15 is only unbelievers. There's no believers present at this judgment. Why? Because believers have already been judged. Um, the church at the rapture, um, believers at the second coming, and then throughout the millennial reign, you know, people who died were glorified and had their judgment. Um, and remember we talked about with other places, we want to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we want revelation to interpret revelation, right? Like, yes, we we don't ignore the context of the rest of the Bible when we preach Revelation, but Revelation is a consistent message from front to back, and it it utilizes the same thought patterns, same themes, same streams of, of, of argument, development, all of that. And so let Revelation interpret Revelation. Look at what it says, verse 12 I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Who are these dead people? Again, a dispensational will say, well, this is all the unbelieving dead, all the, the wicked dead from throughout history um, and all that. Look at Revelation chapter 11. Papa Fred put me on to this as we were thinking through this together. Look at Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Um, well, 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying... We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. I mean, you see, so this is talking about Revelation 22, Revelation 20 as well. The nations raged, your wrath came, the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, both what? Small and great. So God's people in Revelation are referred to as small and great. Look again at chapter 19, um, chapter 19,
2: verse 5, right?
1: Uh, I Second. believe it is verse 5. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they're, they're looking at the destruction of the great prostitute. Uh, verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. From the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Same description, two different times, referring to God's people in view of the final judgment, okay? So we get back to Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, when he said, John says, I saw the dead, great and small. That's not just referring to unbelievers, referring to believers as well. John's already told us uh, that believers are included in the great and the small. And so we are not to try to slice up and divide. Well, that's the great and, you know, that's only the great and small um, unbelievers. John doesn't say that. He nowhere indicates that we are to separate believer from unbeliever, small and great. It's the whole of humanity from all time standing before God to be judged. There's believers and unbelievers at this judgment. And okay. it, it it's yeah.
0: very important, you have the Lamb's Book of Life with the names mm-hmm. of all the saints also at this judgment. Why would the Lamb's Book of Life be at the judgment of unbelievers? Why? Because it's not about, un- it's got unbelievers, yeah, the majority of people who've ever lived probably are going to be unbelievers, but you've definitely got believers present. The Lamb's Book of Life are all the elect of God, and the, those who are cast into the lake of fire are not God's people. So clearly they're both present, Lamb's Book of Life and those who are cast into the lake of fire. We have the judgment of all humanity in this scene.
1: Yeah, and think about verse 15, okay? Like, I know we're, we're kind of bouncing around in some of this, but it says, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a conditional statement. If your name's not in the book of life, you go into the lake of fire. What does it mean if your name is? You don't go to the lake of fire. You enter into verse 21, the new heavens and yeah, the, the earth. new earth. And so that mm-hmm. is so Key, at the end of the day, going along with what Mark was just saying, our hope at the judgment is not our works, ultimately. Will our works show that we've been saved? Yes, but we will know that we've never done enough, we've never preached enough, we've never witnessed enough, prayed enough, read our Bibles enough, turned away from sin enough, and we will know we have not come close to doing what God is worthy of. And so in that day, our one boast is gonna be Jesus. Okay, our name's in his book, the book of life. And that's why we escape this eternal punishment. But again, that's our hope on that day when we are there alongside unbelievers. Our name's written in the book and theirs isn't.
0: Okay, turn with me real quick to chapter 13 of Revelation. We're running uh, shorter on time now, but look at Revelation 13. I'm just gonna kind of make the same point all over again here. But Revelation 13, look at look at this right here. Look, look at verse um, 7, Revelation 13, verse 7, talking about the beast again. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth… Now, remember, earth dwellers is a technical term for unbelievers in Revelation. All who dwell on the earth, that's unbelievers, will worship it, the beast. Everyone, that's everybody whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, now follow this here. What is the evidence that a person's name is in the Lamb's book of life? They don't follow the beast. If your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, that will become evident in the fruit of your life, which will say, I'm giving myself over to the beast. I'm going to follow this satanic pathway. Every universal, 100% of all people who are not believers... of people not in the Lamb's Book of Life will follow the beast, 100%. And the only ones who resist it do so because their name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, the point is our actions bear witness to where we really are in terms of our status. If we're in the Lamb's Book of Life, it will show in how we live. We will not give in to the beast ultimately. But if our name is not there, we will give in. So our, our actions, our fruit are bearing witness to what's actually true of us. So the Lamb's Book of Life is the ultimate cause of why we do not give in and fall away. And I just... I can't help mentioning a Reformed theology point because when, they, when they're there, you can't, you can't resist it. Look, look one more time at verse eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. It is God's eternal decision, his unconditional election that puts us in the lamb's book of life apart from anything we ever had done or ever would do. It is God's sheer gracious act of putting us in that lamb's book of life. That's the only reason why the word's before the foundation of the world, are in the sentence, because God did this before I was even alive. So it was not something based on me. It was based on His undeserved and unmerited grace and favor. I guess that's the formal name, too, of the book, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Right. Yes. Yes. And it clearly, again, indicating Jesus particularly purchased this particular group of people. All right, we're going to come in for a close. Let's go back to Revelation 20, and we will wrap up uh, right here. Let me reread the last section, and then we will pray. Look again at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, we believe this is everybody who's ever lived, standing before the throne, and books were opened. This has all the deeds of all the people who've ever lived. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Greg, can you pray for us? Yeah,
1: let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, its clarity. We thank you for... It's sobriety, Um, Lord, I pray that the reality of the coming final judgment would truly make us sober people, Um, God, because we live in a world filled with every person who's going to stand before you at this judgment um, to either enter eternal life or be cast into eternal punishment. Um, There's no human being that we will encounter this week who's not going to be at this judgment. Every single one will. And I pray that this would have the appropriate effect on our thinking, God, on our planning, on our dreaming, on our, how, how we spend our time and how we live our lives, because this day will come. And I pray, God, that it would shape us as a people, as individuals, Lord, that we would live in light of this reality that we are all going to stand before God one day. I am going to stand before you one day. And so I pray, Lord, that this coming reality would have a massive effect on how we think and how we speak and how we live. But we are so thankful that at the end of the day, our hope rests not in ourselves, but in Christ. And because we know our hope is in Christ, Lord, help us to bring forth fruit that lines up with what our hope is. Um, I pray for everyone in this room, God, that we would be able this week to demonstrate that we belong to you, that we have been changed, that we have been purchased through the blood of Jesus, and that he is our Lord and master. Uh, May it be evident in how we talk, how we speak, how we treat others, and in everything. Um, And so, God, we just thank you again for this text, Uh, Lord, that you tell us the future and we can trust that this, because you said it, this is how it's going to happen. And uh, God, we worship You, and again, we give thanks for so great a Savior as the Lord Jesus, and it's in His name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. So we plan to spend probably two more weeks dealing with uh, a little bit with hell and then also mainly the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, and then we will plan to get into our cultural series, uh, which we've been calling Against the Culture for the Culture. We'll be dealing with a lot of different uh, hot-button cultural issues that are going on in our world today. Thank y'all.